In our time together this morning, we considered the fingerprints of humility, which reside upon the account of the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That among all of the other proofs that we have of Jesus as our Messiah, an inauspicious but powerful one is the humble nature of his entrance into this world. Uh, in this manner of Jesus' coming, there was a perfect uh, and intended reflection of the will of the Father as it related to humility. And as was Jesus' beginning, so too was his end, a perfect reflection of the will of the Father. Now, this one should not surprise us as much. We talk a lot more about Jesus' end than his beginning, and, and rightfully so. His beginning was, in many ways, a means to the end. Uh, the beginning uh, reflects to us the reality of fulfillment of prophecy, uh, the, the fingerprints of God's working, but the fingerprints of God's working in the reality of prophecy leads us to his, uh, his temporal end, in a sense, right? Uh, the, the cross of Jesus Christ, his burial, and then his resurrection unto eternal life, and seated now at the hand, right hand of the Father. Jesus lived out his life, and as he did so, the fact that he then gave it to purchase our forgiveness is most certainly what we would expect from the God who clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. And in that Jesus was a man, his choice to do so is what we would expect of Messiah and bears the fingerprints of God's virtue in his choice, not just in his circumstances. But I'd like us to go back a bit further this morning and consider not necessarily just the act of purchasing our forgiveness. Did I say this morning? Whew. It's, this, it's, it's evening now. Um, it's been a day. I'd like us to consider not just the act of purchasing our forgiveness, though naturally we'll begin our time there. But I'd like us to consider, as we think of forgiveness, remember we're kind of continuing on with this thinking of, of humility, forgiveness, and truth that we've been on for several weeks now. As we think on this, I'd like us to think not just about the nature of Jesus Christ choosing to go to the cross, but how very deliberate going all the way back to the foundation of the world and before, God's desire to forgive mankind has been. And in doing so, once again, see the fingerprints of God. There was a day some years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven when Paul stood before Herod Agrippa. Agrippa was obviously not the Herod of the days of Jesus' birth. You'll read, probably, if you read the account or if you're here on Christmas Eve, you'll read about Herod, and that Herod is a Herod known to history as Herod the Great. This was not Herod the Great. That Herod, of course, died before Jesus even returned out of Egypt, right, to uh, Nazareth. This was a man known in history as Agrippa II. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who ruled in the days of Jesus' birth. His father, Agrippa I, was the man who had deeply persecuted the church in Acts chapter 12, killing James, the brother of John, imprisoning Peter because the Jews liked it. And at the end of Acts chapter 12, we read of his untimely end when he stands up and he gives a great oration, a great speech, 
And the people there credit him with having the voice of God. And in that he did not give the glory to God and rather took the divine glory for himself, the Bible says God struck him dead on the spot. And so ended the life of Agrippa I. His son Agrippa II was the man who, along with Festus, took it upon himself to hear Paul's arguments after his arrest and his appeal to Caesar. They kind of got into a weird situation because uh, Paul is standing before Festus and he appeals to Caesar. And now he's going to go to Caesar and Agrippa comes and he's interested in this and Festus is interested in this. And they have this weird, this weird conundrum where they say, okay, we have to send this guy to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen, but we don't have any charges. Like he asked to, to go to Caesar. He appealed to Caesar before he's even been charged with anything. So let's talk to him a little bit and see if we can figure out why it is we're going to be sending him so that he doesn't get to Caesar's court. And Caesar says, why are you here? And nobody knows why he's here because he wasn't charged with any crime. He just appealed to Caesar. Like he just wants to go talk to Caesar. So they, they sat at, at, at judgment and talked with Paul to try to find a reason why they're going to send him to Caesar so that they can write something down and send it with him. And Paul takes this opportunity to testify of the nature of his testimony, really. Agrippa listens to Paul's argument, and as he does so, the apostle testifies of, ex of his experience on the road to Damascus. So we read this, beginning in Acts chapter 26, verse 4. He says, My manner of life from my youth which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, known all, uh, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God to our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a very incredible thing with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself, and I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities, whereupon as I went to Damascus with the authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. 
Notice the commission which Paul was given that he relays here to King Agrippa, sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, and for this purpose, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among the sanctified by faith. This is the reason Christ died. We know this to be true. This is the message of the gospel, which it is always our privilege to be able to reiterate. A gospel that is known in its simplicity in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Man has been ensnared in darkness, the darkness of his own sinful heart since the day Adam chose to partake in the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam chose on that day a path of rebellion for mankind, a path which introduced into our hearts sin and mortified the spirit of man. The spirit of man died, was separated from God. On that day, the life that was in man, through his connection to God, was severed. We're going to talk about that more in a few weeks. And mankind truly died, was brought under the power of Satan, the God of this world whom Adam chose on that day to follow into darkness rather than following the God of creation into light. From that day forward, mankind has been born dead, separated from the Father by virtue of his sin nature and confirmed by his own choices throughout his life. This sinful state making it impossible that mankind can experience the life of God through a personal relationship with him. And this describes the problem that Jesus was sent to solve. Romans 5 describes it thusly. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Therefore, as by one, as by the offense of one, excuse me, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one many, shall many be made righteous." The rebellion of one man ushered sin into this world and separated mankind from the life of God. Every man thus born separated from God, so destined unto eternal separation in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born under the law, not separated from the father, by the sin of Adam, for he was not born of Adam. He was born of a human mother, but conceived of the Holy Ghost. Not in the lineage of Adam, as it relates to the sin that's passed down from Adam to his children. The virgin birth thus bypassing that sin nature. Born of a woman, born human, not separated from the Father by sins of commission. For he never once exercised his will against the will of the Father. And yet at the end of his days, he submitted himself unto the death of the cross, shedding his blood not for his own sins. And in that innocence, giving his life, 
The Father thus applying the innocent blood of the Savior to pay for the sins of the guilty. That's you and me. Just as Adam's choice of rebellion, Romans 5 tells us, paved the way for all men to be born of Adam as separated with, from God, so too Jesus' choice of obedience paved the way for all men born of Adam to be reconciled unto God by faith. And this is the forgiveness of sins of which Paul speaks in Acts 26, that Christ died that you and I might re receive forgiveness of sins, that forgiveness already paid for, having already been paid for on the cross, paid for for every man, woman, and child who will and has ever lived. But that forgiveness must also be received so that the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is why we celebrate Christmas, is it not? Not specifically for the birth of Christ proper. Yes, we celebrate the day that the day spring from on high broke into the darkness of this world. But we celebrate that in that the day spring from on high would shine that light into our hearts and would make provision for us to receive that light through his death on the cross. And that's the gospel, the forgiveness of which Paul spoke in Acts 26, the forgiveness which many of us have experienced through accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, the forgiveness which is offered to every man, woman, child who is willing to come to him by faith. But I want to take our focus a bit different, in a bit of a different direction, in the remainder of our time today as we think about the birth of Jesus Christ. I mentioned it already. We learned a couple of weeks ago about forgiveness. And we talked about forgiveness being something which is, is a release. We, we call this passive forgiveness, right? That passive forgiveness is where I release a person from the actions they have committed against me, whether they deserve it or not, whether they ask for it or not, without them ever even desiring it, because I am releasing them in my heart unto God as unto the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And I am not factoring the ways that they have treated me into the manner in which, I, uh, how which I interact with them. Forgiveness is very deliberate, is it not? In that light. Forgiveness is not something that just comes upon me as a feeling. Forgiveness is not something that just wells up, up in me and over me. Forgiveness is not something I just wake up one day and poof, it's there. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a very deliberate choice. And sometimes it comes through much difficulty. Sometimes it comes through great wrestling. Forgiveness is deliberate. In Revelation 13, we're given a picture of Satan and the man that we often call the man, uh, Antichrist, the man of sin, their rebellion against Christ. And in that text, we read this in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 8. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power, and his seat, and great authority. 
And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? And there was given... Uh, given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months that would be three and a half years and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him Whose, name was, uh, are, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now here we find a distinction between those who walk in rebellion and have not received the forgiveness of sins, still resting in darkness and the power of Satan, and those who are said to have their names written in the, life, in the book of life of the Lamb. Now, the description of, of Antichrist and, and of Satan is one that we're not going to get into today. I preached an awful long series in Revelation, uh, and you, if you want that information, it's there online for you. Go to LegacyBaptistChurch.net, go to the archive page, it's there. Uh, go on YouTube, it's there, and um, you can find it. But I draw your attention to how the book of life is described here. The book of life of the Lamb, that would be Jesus, slain from the foundation of the world. Now let's think about that description for a moment. We consider the idea of the foundation of the world. We go back to Genesis and we think through that together. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then God begins to create this universe. Before the, the, the creation took place, of course, man being the crown of God's creation, man being created on the sixth day. Man not having fall, fall, would not fall into sin until after the creation week being over. For at the end of the creation week, the Bible says that God looked at his creation and it was very good. If sin was in the world, it would not be very good. And so we recognize this idea. We, we live under this uh, assumption at, at, at we feel it's a very safe assumption that at the end of the creation week all was very good, that man had not yet fallen to sin. And yet by the time man was there, and certainly by the time man had fallen to sin, the, the world had been founded, right? The foundation of the world had been laid. Now think through this order of events with me. As the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ describes Jesus, Jesus is called the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. We find then that redemption was not plan B for God. In the scope of God's sovereign view of history, redemption was not plan B. God did not create Lucifer to rebel. But we also find that God created Lucifer knowing he would rebel. God did not create Adam to fall to sin. But he did create Adam knowing he would fall to sin. God does not force mankind to follow Satan into this false kingdom that Satan led man into, but he knew the trajectory mankind would take 
through the deceitfulness of his own heart, his pride and his desire to be his own God. And so God had it in his mind before the worlds were even formed, before man was even created in unconditional holiness, well before man fell to sin, God had it in his mind that the second person of the Godhead would be slain to reconcile mankind unto himself. And in this, God had it in his mind and heart to purchase the forgiveness of mankind not only before man would ever ask for it, not only in spite of the fact that man would never be worthy of it, not only in spite of the fact that mankind could never earn it, but God had it in his mind and heart to purchase the forgiveness of mankind before mankind had ever even been created. Such is the forgiving nature of our God. Such is the nature of the forgiveness which he has secured for us on the cross. We see that temporal point in time where Jesus paid for the sins of mankind, where the book was created within which the Lamb's book of life, those who accept Jesus as their Savior are written, but that book of the Lamb book of life is of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Such is the, the significance then of the day when Jesus was born in that manger and called Emmanuel, God with us. Such is the significance that when Jesus was conceived, nine months later, was born, this was not just the coming of a king. It was the realization, not just of the prophecies of Malachi, not just of the prophecies of Isaiah, not even just of the prophecy that God gave to Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.16, this was the realization of a forgiveness which was not only anticipated, but a forgiveness which was ordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus' birth, we learned this morning, was humble and inauspicious. But we cannot overstate just how big of a deal God becoming man is. That for thousands of years, mankind had lived under the weight of sin with only the promise of God's forgiveness. But then came these words, and the angel came in unto her, that would be Mary, Luke 1, verse 28, and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Such was the significance of those words that in that moment that the angel was announcing to her the coming to fruition of that which God had ordained before he had even ordained us, before he had even ordained human existence, that lamb had been slain and secured that forgiveness might be possible. We sing that song. We sang it tonight. O little town of Bethlehem. And in it, these words, 
the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's what we just read. That's what we contemplate. That all of the hopes, all of the fears, all of the wondering, all of the needs, all of the sorrow, all of the sacrifices, all of the blood that was shed, all of the weeping, all of the sorrow, all of the wondering, uh, all of those things that the prophets wrote of that they did not understand and they inquired diligently, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of God which was in them did testify. Even the things that the angels desired look in, to look into and on that night... All of those hopes and those fears, all of that anticipation was brought to temporal fruition. And this is the reality that Zechariah would go on to describe in verses 68 to 79 of Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which hath been seen which have been, excuse me, since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware unto our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Speaking to his son now, this little boy John who had just been born, and thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The people that walked in darkness, Isaiah 9, verse 2 prophesied, have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Adam's sin was a death sentence to mankind. God's gracious forgiveness shined into that darkness, promising all who would believe it that there was coming a day when God himself would within himself provide the means by which their sins would be purged and their forgiveness would be purchased. A forgiveness intended, ordained before the foundation of the world. That promise made in Genesis, that desire established before God even established the world was realized on the day when God appeared in flesh, born to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death, that the promise of salvation might be realized for all who will come to him by faith. And so we would echo, as Paul would say, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. What an example our God has laid for us that we might follow in his steps. Jesus' birth was a humble birth, a reflection of the highest of human virtues toward the God of the universe. Jesus' birth was also a purposed birth. That when Jesus came, when God took on flesh, he was fulfilling in time what he had purposed since before time began. That he might redeem for himself a people. That he might call out for himself a bride, a church. 
And what we find thus is that God's forgiveness gave way to all of our joy, to all of our expectation. And in this season, as we consider Jesus, not just born to live, but born indeed to die, born to die that he might raise again, raise again that we might follow him into life. The purpose of God before the foundation of the world to secure that forgiveness, to secure that redemption. And so we call Christmas a time, as the angel said to the shepherds on that night where they announced Jesus' birth, this is a time of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And may I encourage you, it has not been an easy year. It has not been a year where people have been happy. People have been angry. It has not been a year that I would define by the word forgiveness, peace, or goodwill. And yet, as we consider this, the, the nature of Christ's coming, we considered this morning his humility and the nature of his humility. We consider this evening his forgiveness, ordained before the foundation of the world. And may I encourage you to live out this week, to live out this season with determined forgiveness, not just toward the immediate, but toward the far-reaching, with a determination to embody in yourself that which everything of that, that day that Jesus came embodied, which was the fruition of God's plan ordained before the foundation of the world to offer to you something which you did not deserve, which you did not even want, which you could never earn, the forgiveness of God, reconciliation into life. By reflecting the kind of love and forgiveness and reconciliation that we have experienced to others in this season, we have an opportunity to maximize the memorial of that which Christ has done. And let me encourage you to do that this week. Maximize the memorial of what Christ has done. We're still waiting for all that the angels announced on that night, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But that's what God was extending. That was the hand that reached down from heaven on that night. And God said, let me call you up to this reality that there's coming a kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand, where there will be, in its fullness, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. That is the kingdom for which we long, unto which we strive. That is the kingdom for which we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it is coming, Christian. And in this week, let us live out that memorial. Let us live out that anticipation. Let us extend toward others. Let us extend toward, toward, toward those that are around us. Let us extend toward those that don't know us, but to which we don't have the kindest feelings toward this forgiveness, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And may Christ's coming in the flesh as Emmanuel be to us a glorious reminder of the privilege that we have to live and walk in this same forgiveness as Christ did for us may we do for others thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota more information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net